We'd like to welcome you to our current event and weekly Bible study for November 18th, 2019. And today we're going to be initially covering the subject of the Nephilim, the Giants, the Anunnaki. What did the early church fathers believe about them? What are modern day evidences of them that are starting to increasingly manifest? This is some really mind-blowing stuff we're going to be covering. I haven't, this is it, I'm going to incorporate this into my current event and Bible study, but the first part of this is going to be like a dedicated study on this particular subject. I haven't broached this subject in a while just because the current events seem to push, but eventually this is going to be the main current event we're going to be dealing with. This is going to be like the 800-pound gorilla in the room that's most likely going to be one of the main current events that uh, the church will have to deal with at some point. <clears throat> I know one thing, in Genesis 6, it sure was the main current event every day of their life, if you think about it. You know, so, as it was in the days of Noah, which is Genesis 6, so shall it be in the days of the coming of the Son of Man. So, we should be on the lookout for this. Now, what did the church, early church fathers believe about the Nephilim, or the giants? So, just to look at Genesis, um, when we look at Genesis, let me just give you the verse here specifically, 6-4, there were giants in the earth in those days and also after that, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, sons of God being angels that fell, came into the daughters of men, obviously, they're a separate classification. If it was just men breeding with women, why would they classify the two differently? It was totally different. Anyway, sons of God is always an always that term is always every single time in the Old Testament in reference to fallen angels or angels really before they fell. But they were sons of God. They saw the women that they were fair, and then they fell. Okay, and then they procreated with women. Then they became they wouldn't be referred to as sons of God anymore. Okay, after this incursion happened, um, but. Remember, they were put on the planet in large part to protect man, to oversee the affairs of men, to report back to God, you know, depending on what their calling was, what their, what their classification was. So these sons of God came into the daughters of men. They bare children unto them. The same became mighty men of old, which were men of renown. Now, we're going to be talking about all this at length, and I have talked about all this at length in previous studies. But the word giants in that is translated from the um, Hebrew word nephil. Okay, so let's just look at that real quick. Nephil. Strong's H, 5303. Nephil. Nephil. Okay, so that's nephil is the actual Hebrew root from which the word giants is derived from. These are the offspring of the fallen angels and the women, the human women. Wasn't the godly line of Seth mating with the daughters of Cain? There's no way you can prove that in the Bible without going so extra biblical and leap of logic wise. It just but it's the seminaries are afraid of this stuff. And so they've brainwashed the pastors into believing this totally obvious thing that is like an 800 pound gorilla in the room that's always there in the bible that they don't want to acknowledge and um <clears throat> this is where we get you know the whole root word or the whole word nephilim 
which is the outline of biblical uses, is giants or the Nephilim. Okay. Um, anyway, I just wanted to kind of give that just to start out just as a little bit of a, of a refresher. In our seven-part series, beginning and end made the biblical case for the account of the Nephilim. Okay, so the first sentence here in the seven series article beginning and made the biblical case for the account of the nephilim namely that genesis 6 details an era in which fallen angels entered the human realm took human wives and conceived offspring with them who were giants uh while many books articles and sermons on the nephilim have seen a massive resurgence in the past decade this interpretation of the antediluvian era of the bible is meaning pre-flood is um, not a new one now we're going to get further into that, but this is from the beginning and end website, okay? Now, the, the um, main writer for the beginning and the end website has been a longtime listener of mine, okay? And he wrote a book, his name is Ryan Peterson. He wrote a book, Judgment of the Nephilim. He sent me the book, okay? And... Um, I'll just read you the letter that he sent me. I still haven't had a chance to read this book yet. I'm just, I'm just buried. But um, he sent me this letter, and this was on February 22nd, 2018. Greetings in the name of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. I am the writer for the Beginning and the End website. I am honored to be sending you this letter to know that you, that you referenced our ministry on your show on several occasions. Additionally, I have known many, many followers. Uh, I know you have many, many followers, but... I have followed your ministry ministry for many years, and in addition to sending offerings, I actually sent you a DVD a few years back as a gift. I say this to you to let you know how much I appreciate your tireless and uncompromising uh, service to our Lord Jesus Christ. I'm not going over all that to blow my own horn. I'm just kind of wanting to give you context here. So with that said, I am pleased to send you an advanced copy of Judgment of the Nephilim, my first published book. The reason I wrote this book is because once I started writing about the Nephilim, I was overwhelmed by the amount of emails uh, that praised the article for relying on scripture alone. So he wrote a book just based on um, scripture alone. That's it. He didn't, in other words, he didn't go outside, didn't use Enoch or Jubilees or any of the other things. Now, like I said before, I've used the book of Enoch on many occasions, the, the blue hard copy from the Baptist Theological Press that has all the King James references. And I've even done a study on that. But I never said that book of Enoch was canon of scripture and that it's, Equated with scripture, okay, I didn't go there. But I used it more as an expansion in the commentary on Genesis 6. Because all we really have is Genesis 6. Which isn't really, doesn't give you a ton of detail on actually exactly what was going on then. Um, we get a pretty good idea, but this, evidently, this book goes way further into it. Um, Judgment, Judgment of the Nephilim is truly a unique book as it is the first comprehensive biblical study of the Nephilim relying only on scripture. Judgment of the Nephilim surveys every passage in the Bible related to Genesis 6, the rebel angels, the daughters of men, the Nephilim giants. There are many, many revelations in this book you will not find on the Nephilim all by God's grace. Um, and then, um, I really hope you enjoy the book and, forward, and look forward to your thoughts. <laughs> I haven't been able to give my thoughts yet, but... Thanks again for your time. May the Lord Jesus Christ bless you abundantly, Ryan, in Christ, Ryan. Okay, so <clears throat> I keep that letter with the book because I'm going to, hopefully, Lord willing, find uh, some time to read this. Um, but he, this is a seven-series article, and I believe this was the last 
part of the seven series article. The, the first in the series was, uh, and I'll just go through these uh, if you want. If you want to go to them, um, in in play the intro, Nephilim, Giants in the Bible, um, Part One, Nephilim, Bloodlines of the Nephilim, a biblical study. Part Two, Nephilim, Giants, Enemies of God in the Bible. Part Three, The Wars of the Nephilim Kings. This looks really interesting. Part four, uh, the Nephilim and the Great Secret of the Occult. Part five, the Nephilim and Pop Culture. Part six, the Nephilim and the Alien Gospel Deception. Wow. And then what did the early church followers believe about the Nephilim? Now, I'm going to be going over that one today. Uh Oh, this is nice. Apostasy alert. This related post. Ohio Church encourages students to spit on, slap, and cut pastor with knife in Easter lesson. Well, there you go. And they've even got, looks like, footage, uh, guys without their shirts on in church. This is good. This is good. Okay. Anyway, um, getting back to the report here. On the um, Now... On the contrary, from the very first generation of the church, missionaries, teachers, and bishops, some of whom were disciplined or discipled by the apostles of Christ themselves, believed that the sons of God in Genesis 6 did indeed have illicit sexual relations with human women who gave birth to hybrid Nephilim giants. This article will go on to, to through the writings of the early church fathers and Jewish historians from the first centuries after the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ that agree in the account of the Nephilim. Justin Martyr. One of the most famous confirmed the account of Genesis 6 and the fallen sons of God marrying human women. Justin Martyr was a Christian philosopher and apologist in the 2nd century AD. He was an ardent defender of the Christian faith who was ultimately beheaded for his refusal to offer sacrifices to pagan gods. So, I mean, this guy gave it all, you know, gave it all for the Jesus, Jesus Christ. He was a martyr. Several of his writings are extant and had a great deal to say about the angelic incursion of Genesis 6 that gave birth to the Nephilim. Here's one on his it's from his work the second apology chapter five quote from justin martyr god when he had made the whole world and subjected things earthly to man and arranged the heavenly elements for the increase of fruits and rotation of the seasons and appointed this divine law for all these things he evidently made for man committed the care of men and all things under heaven to angels whom he appointed over them but the angels transgressed this appointment and were captivated by the love of women. Obviously, he's in reference to Genesis 6 there. Okay? Obviously. Irenaeus, who um, lived to 202 AD, was the bishop or pastor of the church, which is now in Lyons, France. He was a disciple of Polycarp, who was a disciple, a direct disciple of the Apostle John. His treatise against heresies was a landmark work that challenged the heretical Gnostic Christianity that threatened the true faith at the time. On Genesis 6-2, Irenaeus wrote, quote, And for a very long while wickedness extended and spread and reached and laid hold upon the whole race of mankind until a very small seed of righteousness remained among them. Now he's in reference to... Uh, Genesis 6, where there was only eight people left on the ark. So, until a very small seed of righteousness remained among them, and illicit unions took place upon the earth. Since angels were united with the daughters of the race of mankind, and they bore to them sons for their exceeding greatness, who were called giants. This is a 
this and all of this is referenced with the actual source reference link but this is one from his writing a discourse in the demonstration of apostolic preaching uh, now just so you know i have addressed this subject breaking down specific scriptures relating to the subject teaching now you can just key in nephilim um, in the keyword search box at contendingfortruth.com but i did a study on september 5th 2011 entitled nephilim sons of god fallen angels demons evil spirits tartaros um, sons of seth daughters of cain augustine of hippo thomas aquinas john calvin warning and bible study it's a part one and two bible study so i address a lot of the stuff at length now that's just one of the many studies i've done on the subject though you can key in giants nephilim if you want to hear all of them uh now to add one more point to what we just read um regarding the quotes from justin martyr and Irenaeus, we can read in jude 6 okay and the angels now this is new testament and the angels which kept not their first estate that first estate means original place with god estate means abode their their home okay these these are the angels of genesis 6 these are the sons of god of genesis 6 the sons of god is used in job and in genesis 6 it's the only times you'll read the phrase it's always in reference to angels always there's no now i understand in the new testament which is translated from you know underlying greek and aramaic in some cases um that's a different term and that can apply to a new testament christian believer but when we compare scripture with scripture line upon line precept upon precept okay in the old testament that phrase tra translated from the hebrew is always in reference to angels always okay but jude 6 says and the angels which kept not their first estate okay or home abode but left their own habitation he meaning god hath reserved in everlasting chains under darkness under the judgment of the great day Okay, now that's in a special compartment of hell called Tartaros. It's only used one time in the Bible. We're going to read about that next in 2 Peter. That's where, that's where they were chained. Okay. Then it goes on to say, even as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities about them in like manner, giving themselves over to fornication and going after strange flesh. So what's the parallel here? Okay, well, the parallel in the first part of Jude verse 6 is, the angels which kept not their first estate, they fell, okay? They left their own habitation. They procreated with women. What does it say about both of these examples? Sodom and Gomorrah and the angels that kept not their first estate. They were giving themselves over to fornication and going after strange flesh. It says even as Sodom and Gomorrah. Meaning they were even as, they were just like Sodom and Gomorrah these angels that fell that's why it says even as they were both going after strange flesh what, what does that mean well sodom and gomorrah the guys were going after the guys okay sodomy i mean the the two angels walk into sodom and you know all the guys in the city see these two good looking appearing men but that's how they were they were appearing as and they want to have sexual relations with them well they were wanting to go after strange flesh that means inappropriate. That means it's not right. It's not fitting. It's against nature. Strange. That's what that means in the King James. Well, so did the, the angels in Genesis 6. It's exactly what they're doing. That's why it says even as Sodom, because they were comparing the two. 
there's, are set forth as an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. Sodom and Gomorrah, fire and brimstone. The fallen angels, well, they're in, they're in, uh, they're reserved in everlasting chains under darkness, under the judgment of the great day. Okay, so they're both suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. Because the, the inhabitants of Sodom and Gomorrah, on top of that, and on top of the fire and brimstone, did go to hell as well. So. 2 Peter 2, 4, 6. Again, New Testament. For if God spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them down to hell, now that word, if you translate that from the Greek, that the, it's, it's um, derived from the word Tartaros. I believe the other hells uh, probably translated from the word Sheol. Okay? But in this particular case, it's translated from the word Tartaros. Yes, and I just went, I went ahead and went there. Um, Strong's G, 5020. Tartarao. Tartarao. Tartarao, which is the actual word. Tartarao. From Tartarus, the deepest abyss of hell. It's only used one time in the Bible. Okay? One time. And it's used in the description where these angels are at okay um so that's where what we're talking about here all right so just a little more clarification there for if god spared not the angels that sinned but cast them down into hell tartaros or tartarajo the deepest abyss of hell and then back to the verse and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved unto judgment and spared not the old world but save Noah, the eighth person, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood upon the world of the ungodly. So notice in these two different parts, Jude 6 and 2 Peter, we've got, we've got a lot of parallels. We've got um, Noah's day and we've got Sodom and Gomorrah. Okay, And we've got what was happening in Noah's day. Fallen angels procreating with women, going after strange flesh. They got put put into Tartarus, into everlasting chains under the day of judgment. There's all these parallels. They're, 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 they're using these as cross-reference parallels. Bringing in the flood upon the ward of the ungodly and turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes. Condemn them with an overthrow. And again, here we have Sodom and Gomorrah come up again. Because it's almost like he's using Sodom and Gomorrah in the days of Noah as an examples of the severest, most grievous judgments of God. Okay, those are like the two biggest examples in the Bible where that's happening, I, I believe, what we're getting here. And in both cases, the inhabitants of Sodom and Gomorrah and the fallen angels were going after strange flesh. Because angels are not meant to procreate with women. And men are not meant to be pro, uh, sex, have sexual relations with men. They can't procreate with men, but if you know what I mean. It's an abomination. Oh, sorry, that was a little politically incorrect, though, what I just said. Um, and turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them with an overthrow, making them an example unto those that after should live ungodly. So th these are set forth as examples to the world. Don't live this way, or you're going to end up in the same place. Okay? That's why it's very important to be, you know, uh, as, as, a, as a Christian, to be very pure, um sexually in these types of things because 
you know, there's very, very, th this all was based on perverted sex. These judgments of Sodom and Gomorrah and Noah's day were all predicated and based on perverted sex. If you think about it, it's what got them where, where they were at. So this is an example that we should all, uh, those that after should live ungodly. Meaning for those that want to live ungodly afterward, this is your example. So you've been warned in other words. Notice that the angels that were cast down to hell is referenced in the same time frame as Noah or Genesis 6. From these two passages, it is clear that Peter and Jude both affirm that the sons of God in Genesis 6 were angels who committed fornication. Not only does this study of the text of Genesis 6 reveal this plainly, but we have two witnesses from the New Testament between these verses that we just read from 2 Peter 2, 4 through 6 and Jude 6. Those are our two witnesses. Okay? And out of the mouth of two or three witnesses, a thing is established. Um, now, let me just read that last sentence again. But we have two witnesses from the New Testament. Between both verses, they reference Noah's time period and the sexual sins of Sodom and Gomorrah. Well, they also really reference, if, if you look at it, they really reference the sexual sins of Noah's day as well. Because it says, even as Sodom and Gomorrah. Meaning they were going after strange flesh. These angel-human hybrids of Genesis 6 are the factual basis for the gods of ancient culture. And I mean gods of the small g. The gods of old. The men of renown, like the Bible refers to. The Greek gods, the Greek myths, the legends, the you know Achilles and Hercules and Zeus and Apollo and all this pantheon. Some of them were fallen angels. Some of them were Nephilim. The fallen angels were the progenitors. They, they, they mated with human women and the women bore them Nephilim giants. And then these hybrids went out and did... The mighty men of old, the men of renown, did all these exploits. That's the difference here. Uh, going further, also, I do not believe that the fallen angels are demons or evil spirits, as the fallen angels are clearly in hell. Something to think about. In this case, Tartaros. See the... Um, okay, so... But we know from scriptures that de demons and evil spirits are real. And um, let's go further here. Matthew 12, 43. Okay, here's Jesus talking. When the unclean spirit is gone out of a man. Okay, so notice the unclean spirit, where does it want to be? It wants to be in a human. It wants to be in a human container. Because that's where it's most comfortable. That's where it feeds. This is why I've been emphasizing deliverance so much lately because these demons, that's where they want to be. And you might have picked them up from generational curses. You might have picked them up from certain sins that you commit. You might have picked them up from things that were done to you that you had no control over. There's a lot of different ways for this to happen. And they're invisible so you can't see when it's happening. When the unclean spirit is gone out of a man, he walketh through dry places seeking rest and findeth none. When the unclean spirit is gone out of a man, he walketh through dry places seeking rest and findeth none. Oh, that's Luke. Okay, the first one was Matthew twelve forty three. The next one was Luke eleven twenty four, which is the same thing basically, but it it expands it in Luke twenty four when it says, "When the unclean spirit is gone out of a man, he walketh through dry places seeking rest and finding finding none. He saith, I will return unto my house." whence i came out my house yeah that's how he views the unclean spirit view 
the body that they came out of as their house. That word translated in the KJV is translated 104 times as house, three times as household, two times as home, two times as at home. Um, so that's is where they're they're used to dwelling. This is their new abode, in other words. Well, we're gonna we're gonna get to where they were at originally. Okay, I don't want to. Um, we'll get into that next actually. So they want to return back to the house once I came out. And then it goes on to say, you know, if he returns and finds the house clean swept, he brings seven more worse than himself, seven more demons worse than himself. This is why, like, an unsaved person would never want to try to get deliverance. Because if the Holy Spirit's not occupying that, um, doesn't live with inside you as a born-again Christian, then what can happen is you get delivered and you're seven times worse worse off, even more. Because it says they bring seven even more wicked than themselves back to the house. So for me, deliverance is only for saved people. And in the particular case of, and there were certain instances in the Bible where people were delivered and then got saved on the spot. Like the maniac at Ganadur, or that, the, the one that roamed the funeral, the uh, cemetery. Okay, he got saved like instantaneously when Jesus cast out the demons and put him in the swine. Um, now, in that case, yeah, that's that's like right on the money, mass deliverance. He got delivered of all this demonic baggage and he got saved. I mean, whoa! I mean, talk about a change in life, you know? I mean, I mean, that's awesome. So those, to me, are the only biblical examples I can think of of when a person uh, should be delivered. Uh, now, whatever happened to the spirits of the giants in Genesis 6-4? Think about that. Well, we know it says that those angels that fell in Genesis 6 are in Tartaros. Okay, and I know I'm, I'm butchering the, the, the um, Greek on it, but you know what I'm saying. The deepest abyss, abode of hell, reserved just specifically for these fallen angels. So... What gives then? You know? What happened to the spirits of the giants of Genesis 6 4? Now, those aren't fallen angels. Those are the spirits that were in the giants. Their dads were fallen angels. They weren't, though. They're hybrid creatures. They were like, their spirit was like half fallen angel, half human. What happened to those spirits? The book of Enoch, now again, I'm using it as commentary, but the book of Enoch offers an explanation in chapter 15, 8, where it says, now the giants who have been born of spirit and of flesh, meaning spirit, meaning fallen angel, flesh, meaning of a human woman, the giants who were born of spirit and flesh shall be called upon the earth evil spirits. In other words, they're disembodied spirits of the Nephilim. When the Nephilim died, the spirits didn't go to hell. Okay. They roam the earth or wherever they're at and have, and on earth shall be their habitation. Evil spirits shall proceed from their flesh, meaning when they die, evil spirits are going to come out of them because they were created from above, from the holy watchers was their beginning and primary foundation. But yeah, okay, this is before they fell though, but when they, when they fell, they weren't holy watchers anymore, but you know, evil spirits shall they be upon the earth 
and the spirits of the wicked shall they be called. The habitation of the spirits of heaven shall be in heaven, but upon the earth, meaning the spirits of heaven shall be heaven, meaning like the good angels, okay, and Jesus and God and, you know. But upon earth shall be the habitation of the terrestrial spirits who are born on earth. These are the disembodied spirits of the Nephilim. And again, this is why deliverance is real and so important. And again, you know, that's why I've recommended the, the Winworthy Mass Deliverance and the, and the Derek Prince Breaking Curses as just the, the introductory thing that I think all Christians should be doing. Just key in Winworthy Mass Deliverance on YouTube and Derek Prince Breaking Curses on YouTube. and Just go through those as many times as you need to. Um, it's a great place to start. This tells us that the spirit of the Nephilim are earthbound spirits. These same spirits are also subject to the command of the more powerful fallen angels, which are like their parents. I believe it is these spirits that are the ones responsible for hauntings, pretending to be the voices of people who have passed away. Why? Because they're familiar spirits. You ever heard of that term in the Bible? Yeah, it's true. I believe the witch of Endor had a familiar spirit. Well, when you die, let's say somebody dies and their they're, um, great aunt Agnes dies and, you know, she, let's just say she's not a Christian and she dies and she lived in this house all her life and unfortunately she dies her spirit goes to hell but those demons they're terrestrial bound they stay on earth I'm not saying they can't go to hell and torment people down there because you know I think that happens but um, I mean hell's not a cakewalk that's for sure but these spirits then stay upon the earth and they're familiar with that person. They're familiar with the way that person looked, their actions, their voices, and they can mimic them. That's what seances are. Oh, I hear Uncle Fred. It sounds just, I mean, this. let's say the seance, the witch doing the seance is speaking and it sounds like Uncle Fred's his same nuances. He knows all this stuff. He knows all these things that only Uncle Fred can know. Yeah, because Uncle Fred was full of demons and this is a familiar spirit that was familiar with Uncle Fred and all of his attributes and all of his actions. And he's going to try to convince you that you're talking Uncle Fred and you're not. You're talking to a counterfeit Uncle Fred. That's going to convince you, oh, everything's good here. I'm on the other side. I'm happy or whatever. And they'll try to appear as righteous typically and convince you and con you into thinking that, you know, when you die, you just kind of walk around on the planet until you get it right. Then you go to the light. It's all a lie from the pit of hell. It's one of the greatest deceptions. And a lot of people are going to wind up in hell because they buy into that stuff. So these spirits are the ones that are responsible for hauntings, pretending to be the voices of people who have passed away, taking possession of bodies of other people because they once had bodies and desire to be in one again. And again, then there's the other example of like where you see a little kid and he seems to be wise among his years and they, and they interview him and they're, they're like well and he starts talking about battles he was in in world war ii like he's a grown man and they're like what what are you talking i've, I've heard this one particularly before and they're yeah i was in the battle of whatever akabar and you know i i was was in a fighter plane and i was over the atlantic or, or the pacific and i shot down three japanese zeros and you know and then they look into that battle and they find out that you know there's how could he have known this he's a little kid 
How can you have possibly known these kind of details? He even gives his name, rank, serial number, the whole nine yards. Because little Freddy there got that, for one in one way or another, got that fighter pilot's familiar spirit. And now it's dwelling in him because they always seek to inhabit a body. That's how it works. It's simple. It's not, it's not complicated. It's pretty revelatory when it comes to like, you're probably not going to hear this at Joel Osteen's church. I doubt it. Maybe. Maybe. I don't know. He's coming around. He's coming around. Oh, I got a study I'm doing. I'm going to be trying to get on him. Him and Kanye West. Anyway, um, then we have a picture of the Pergamon altar. The 2nd century BC, it depicted, it was made in 2nd century BC, before Christ, um, depicted giants battling gods. Uh, this altar is referenced in the book of Revelation. St. Ambrose was, a, was one of the most influential Christians of the 4th century. He was appointed Bishop of, of Milan, made a passionate defense of the deity of Christ against those who proponents of the Arian heresy on the Nephilim, St. Ambrose wrote, quote, The giants, the Nephilim, were on earth in those days. The author of the divine scripture, meaning of the divine scripture of um, Genesis 6, does not mean that those giants must be considered according to the tradition of poets as the sons of, of the earth, but asserts that those whom he defines with such a name because of the extraordinary size of their body were generated by angels and women. Angels and women procreated. In other words, they're not to the according to the poets and the sons of men, meaning like this whole godly line. Uh, I think this is probably what was maybe starting to try to crop up the godly line of Seth and the wicked daughters of Cain or, or whatever they, they believe. No, it's because this, this extra, these giants were generated by angels and women. And there's the reference to where he said it. Clement of Rome was a Christian bishop in Rome in the first century and a contemporary of john the apostle his epistle to the corinthian church is one of the oldest extant christian writings outside the new testament the clementine homilies are a series of writings from the second and third century purporting to uh record dialogue between clement and the apostle peter whilst authorship may have not been from clement its details on the nephilim again demonstrate that this concept was well established in the early church Referring to the angels that fell in Genesis 6, Clement of Rome said, quote, But when having assumed these forms, they, meaning the fallen angels, changed themselves into the nature's, nature of men. They also partook of human lust and being brought under its subjection fell into cohabitation with women. Well, you're like, well, how could they do that? Well, how did, how did the good angels appear as men when they manifested? I don't know, but they can manifest with a body and evidently if they, if they fall... They have the ability to manifest as a man with all the functioning parts. That's their choice. God gives them free will just like he gives us free will. Now, how that all works, I don't know. But it's obvious it happened. So, um, and be brought under, under its subjection, they fell into cohabitation with women and being involved with them and sunk in defilement and altogether emptied of their first power because they, they gave up their first power. They gave up their real power that they had with God when they dwelt in heaven, they gave that all up so that they could fornicate with women. Were unable to turn back to the first purity of their proper nature. Yeah, because once you, you cross that line, it's over for the angels. There's no going back. There's, there's parts in the book of Enoch where they go to Enoch 
the fallen angels that know they messed up and know they've like literally destroyed the whole earth almost did it saved noah and the, you know the eight people on the ark and the animals and they go to enoch and they say go to god i'm not paraphrasing please go to god and plead our case we'll be good we'll, we we promise we won't do it again essentially we'll be good just take us back no sorry there's no there's no going back from this guys none no second chances it's like taking the mark of the beast there's no going back and sunk into defilement and altogether emptied of their first power were unable to turn back to the first purity of their proper nature being extinguished by the weight of lust they changed into flesh they trod the impious path downward for they themselves being fettered with the bonds of flesh now they had flesh it says essentially which is a fetter i mean if think about it if you're an angel you don't have a fleshly body but if all of a sudden you have a fleshly body it's going to feel like you're fettered and you're in your chained down kind of because you've this weight of this fleshly body were constrained and strongly bound wherefore they do no more have been able to ascend in, into the heavens the, and here's the, the source for where he said that the next one Luce, lucius lactanius uh, from i believe he lived from 250 to 325 a.d was a christian author in the fourth century formerly a pagan public official he resigned from political life after converting to christianity he wrote many apologetics defending the christian faith in his chapter entitled on the corruption of angels lucius lactanius wrote quote when therefore the number of men had begun to increase god in his forethought lest the devil to whom from the beginning he had given power over the earth should by subtlety either corrupt or destroy man as he had done at first god in his forethought sent angels for the protection and improvement of the human race and inasmuch as he had given these a free will which just kind of affirms what i just said there he enjoined them above all things not to defile themselves with containment with contamination from the earth which would be under the classification don't fornicate with human women you were never created to do so okay remember the earth was 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 um contaminated by sin after sin entered in at the garden of eden so god said he enjoined them meaning he implored them to these angels before they left don't defile yourselves and contaminate yourselves with things on the earth essentially and thus lose the dignity of their heavenly nature he plainly prohibited them from doing that which he knew that they would do why because he knows the beginning from the end that they might entertain no hope of pardon therefore while they abode among men that most deceitful ruler of the earth by his very association gradually enticed them meaning these angels that ended up falling to vices meaning sin and polluted them by intercourse with women there's the quote for that there's the source these are all early church fathers that this is just a matter of fact well-known thing okay tertullian who lived from 155 to 240 AD, was the African Christian theologian from the Roman province of Carthage. He was a prolific writer and his works are the foundation of Christian thought in the language in the latin of uh, the language of latin outside the bible itself. He is the earliest believer on record to write about the concept of the trinity. 
On Genesis 6 incursion, he wrote, quote, We are instructed, moreover, by our sacred books, how from which certain angels who fell of their own free will there sprang a more wicked demon brood condemned of God along with the authors of their race and that chief we have referred to. Their great business is the ruin of mankind. Well, yeah, Satan comes to kill, steal, and destroy. So from the very first spiritual wickedness sought our destruction. They inflict accordingly upon our bodies diseases and other grievous calamities, while by violent assaults they hurry the soul into sudden and extraordinary excesses, meaning they entice us to sin. And they can bring diseases on us and all kind of curses and all kind of fun stuff. I mean that tongue-in-cheek. Yeah, that's what they do. That's why one-third of Jesus' ministry was casting out devils. And one-third was healing. Well, there was a lot of overlap there. Because a lot of times the devils was what were causing the diseases. Maybe not every single time, but a lot of the time, that's why Jesus emphasized so much that. If you look at his ministry, what was he doing? Well, he was deliverance. He was, he was doing, um, he was healing people of sicknesses and diseases. And many, many times those sicknesses and diseases had a demonic origin. That's how they derive pleasure, creating diseases and sickness in you. And again, that's why I've been emphasizing deliverance so much, particularly as of late. Now, first century Jewish thought on the Nephilim. Antiquities of the Jews is one of the greatest extant historical records, and it mentions the Nephilim. And here's a actual the actual um, cover page of the works of Flavius Josephus, Antiquities of the Jews, the History of the Jewish Wars, Life of Flavius Josephus, written by himself. Uh, it looks old. The, the, the cover page, and there's a, there's a picture of it here in the PDF for this date. November 18th, 2019 at contendingfortruth.com. Anyway, Flavius Josephus is one of the most renowned historians of all. He was a Jew living in Roman-occupied Judea in the decades after the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. His writings, which are extant, very clearly demonstrate his exceptional knowledge of the Old Testament and the history of the Jewish people going back to creation. In his most landmark work, Antiquities of the Jews, he wrote in Genesis 6, quote, for many angels of God accompanied with women and begat sons that proved unjust and despisers of all that was good on account of the confidence they had in their own strength. For the tradition is that these men did what resembled the acts of those whom the Grecians called giants. Meaning they were the men of old, men of renown like the Bible talks about in Genesis 6. The gods of old. Okay, Achilles, Hercules, you know all these so it's well it was well known in the early church totally well known just totally suppressed now once our ministry our ministry started researching the nephilim in depth we realized there was a great deal of untapped rarely quoted christian and jewish writings on the giants that answer many many questions we all have on this topic now we have the answers this is a must-own book if you're the reader on the subject of the nephilim giants the trailer is below and i give you a link to the trailer and this is this is a trailer to my listener, Ryan Peterson's book, Judgment of the Nephilim. This is his official trailer. I'll give you a link to it. Okay, here. And um, I already read you his letter, so you know what he said there. Now, let's go further. 
The Nephilim, the next report, Nephilim Anunnaki are here and have been for centuries. The Anunnaki is a phrase in the modern era that has been made famous primarily by Zechariah Stitchin, who is, who is a, a researcher, um, but a devil. He's, he's, not, he's not a Christian, okay? But <clears throat> within the UFO community and this, he's been the one where you've heard a lot with this phrase, the Anunnaki. Um, found within many of his books, Stitchin explores ancient mythology, megalithic structures around the world, and various books to demonstrate that an extraterrestrial race once visited the planet. Now, I don't recommend you get any of his books, but just wanted to give you a little background there. What's interesting is that these were the gods found within the Sumerian tablets. The Anunnaki were actually evil deities, and their names come from the old god of the sky, Anu. Now, this is from Zechariah Stitchin's standpoint, okay, which is they're saying it the god of the sky was Anu. It's funny because we're going to be talking about the Anunnaki a lot today, and they self-identify as coming from the sky. Anyway, when you begin to look deep into the Bible, you'll see that there are some similarities that often go overlooked by even the most religious people. Such occurrences include giants in the Bible. The Sumerian tablets were written by the Sumerians. This was a society that invented writing. Well, supposedly. They say they did, but I'm not saying, I'm not saying I trust everything that we're going to get from a pagan culture either and had advanced knowledge of mathematics science and astro uh, astronomy according to these tablets the anunnaki or the naj were angels but they were fallen angels obviously ninil and inel were at the center of their stories ninil was the goddess that ruled over the land and inel was her husband um the god of war Nin ninurta was the son of anil and ninil Sorry, little tongue twisters there. These gods are very similar to the gods that you would know from ancient Greece and Rome. Again, we have that parallel again. These gods are very similar to the gods that you would know from uh, ancient Greece and Rome. These giants must have roamed the earth even after the flood occurred as well. There are several occurrences of the giants in Deuteronomy. And I'm just going to give you some of them. Um, all right, before I get ahead of myself, I, I talk about Deuteronomy. We'll get to that next let's talk about um when joshua and um <clears throat> caleb encountered you know or, or what they had to say well joshua 17 5 mentions the giants and it says and joshua answered them if thou be a great people then get up to the wood country and cut down for thyself there in the land of the parasites and of the giants if mount ephraim be too narrow for thee so it was just well known. This is the land of the giants. Okay. And then Numbers 1330. Now this was the reason that the Israelites did not go into the promised land. It hinged upon this portion of scripture. Now, I mean that the original race, the, the original, I should say, generation of Israelites that came out of Egypt, why they did not go into the promised land, why they all had to die off um i believe it was save uh caleb and joshua because they were the only ones that t had had the faith to actually go into the promised land so numbers thirteen thirty, and caleb still still the people for before moses now this is when they went out to spy out the land okay now they had just seen all these miracles god had done he parted the red sea they got they got water from the rock they saw what happened you know, with Moses coming off the mount with the Ten Commandments and all that thing. 
God had done all these miracles. He had given them manna to eat every day for their food and, you know, provided for all their... Every day was a miracle. I mean, a literal supernatural miracle. But they still didn't have the faith to believe they could go in and possess the promised land. And here's where it's told about. Numbers 13.30. And Caleb still, still the people um, before Moses and said, Let us go up at once and possess it, for we are not able to overcome it. For we are well able to overcome it. So that was what Caleb's reaction was when he went to Moses, even though they went in and they said, yeah, there's giants everywhere and, they're, and they've got these gigantic cities and there's, see, from, from a, from a um, fleshly standpoint, it looked like they had no chance. But Caleb realized it wasn't about what it looked like. It was about what God could do and it was about that God created the universe. He had just done all of these miracles. He's well... He's well able to take care of anything we're, we're seeing here. I don't care how big and bad they look. Okay. And that's a central theme of what I'm trying to convey today. So Caleb stilled the people before Moses and said, let us go up at once and possess it for we are well able to overcome it. He's like, no problem. No problem. I don't care if there's thousands of giants and they've got huge walled cities. But the next verse is what essentially doomed that whole generation of Israelites that would not go into the promised land. But the men that went up with him said, because there was other people with Caleb, they said, we be not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we. And they brought up an evil report of the land, which they had searched under the children of Israel, saying the land through which we have gone to search it is as a land that eateth up the inhabitants thereof. Why? Because the giants are cannibals. Just like it says in Enoch, and we're going to get into those verses, but... Um, they eateth up the inhabitants. They consume men. That's what they do. That's what Nephilim do. They eateth up the inhabitants of the land and all the people that we saw in it are men of great stature. Next verse. 1333. Numbers. And we saw the giants, the sons of Anak. Huh, Anak? Yeah, like Ananaki? Yeah. Yeah. That's where they actually came from, not Zechariah Stitchin. But anyway, and there we saw the sons of the giants, the sons of Anak, which come of the giants and were in our own sight as grasshoppers. And so we were in their sight, meaning we felt like we were little grasshoppers, like a grasshopper would be to a human. That's how we felt in their sight. They were that big. Now the word Anakims, which is used nine times in the, in the KJV, Okay, which is again where we get the word Anunnaki. Outline of the biblical usage. Anakims. What does that actually mean? Long net. That's what the word Anakim means. Now here I post a picture of what um, the one channel that I've been, I'm going to play one of the videos, Twisted Truth, of what they look like generally. And it's, a, it's an alien-like creature with a very long neck. Okay. They were also a tribe of giants, descendants of Anak, which dwelled in southern Canaan. That's the biblical usage. Now, there are several, several occurrences of giants in Deuteronomy. In Deuteronomy, we read Deuteronomy 128. Whither shall we go up? Our brethren have discouraged our hearts, saying the people is greater and taller than we, which is what we just heard in Numbers. And the cities are great and walled up to heaven, and moreover, we have seen the sons of the Anakims are there. Next verse, then I said unto you, dread not, neither be afraid of them. 
This is God speaking. The Lord your God, which goeth before you, he shall fight for you according to um, all that he did for you in Egypt before your eyes. I'm sorry, I, I went to the start of the chapter, and that's actually Moses speaking basically on God's behalf. Okay, so anyway, let me repeat that verse. So after the people murmur and they were discouraged and they said the people is greater and taller than we and they have these gigantic walls to heaven and the sons of Anakim, Moses said, then I said unto you, dread not, neither be afraid of them. The Lord your God, which goeth before you, he shall fight for you according to all that he did for you in Egypt before your eyes. Now remember that as we talk about this more because this is happening in modern times now these things are manifesting now on planet earth and i don't i believe god's the same today yesterday and forever and what did he say about these things in the bible well moses said dread not neither be afraid of them the lord your god which go before you he shall fight for you according to all that he did for you in egypt before your eyes i mean all the miracles that he'd shown you you should have a ton of faith Look at all the miracles he'd done. <laughs> you know? Deuteronomy 2.10. The, the Emims dwelt therein in times past, a people great and many and tall as the Anakims, which were accounted giants as the Anakims, but the Moabites called them Emims. And again, it was just a different way of saying basically the same thing. The Moabites. Remember that. I'm going to talk a lot about the Moab, Moabites coming up here. Now, the outline, the biblical usage of the outline of the word emims. Okay, now remember, this was synonymous with the Anakims. What did that word in the Hebrew mean? It meant terrors. Specifically, the terror that they caused upon their worshipers. Meaning, they acted like they were gods and they demanded, I'm sure, human sacrifice, animal sacrifice, all kind of tribute probably, of the humans in the surrounding areas if you, if you submitted yourself to them. And even when you did submit the, yourself to them, they would cause great tear upon you, even when you worship them. Why? Because they're stinking bullies and they feed upon your fear and your terror. That's what devils do. Deuteronomy 2.21, a people great and many and tall as the Anakims, but the Lord destroyed them before them. And they succeeded them and dwelt in their stead. Deuteronomy 9, 2, a people great and tall, the children of the Anakims, who thou knowest, of whom thou hast heard say, who can stand before the children of Anak? Now the next verse, understand therefore this day that the Lord thy God is he which goeth over before thee. Remember, he goes before us as a consuming fire, he shall destroy them. Oh, doesn't the Bible say is not my word like as a fire? saith the Lord and like a hammer that breaketh the rock in pieces and the sword of the spirit which is the word of God which is the only offensive weapon in the full armor of God that we're supposed to be putting on every day hmm the Lord thy God is he that goeth over before thee as a consuming fire he shall destroy them meaning the Anakims meaning the Nephilim yeah yeah and he shall bring them down before thy face, so thou shalt drive them out and destroy them quickly, as the Lord has said unto thee. These are really good verses that I'm talking about here to print out. Like you can print it out on my 
the PDF. Now, what I do for you all every week, and I don't say this, and I've done this for years, I color coordinate a lot of stuff where you emphasize certain things. And like this verse, Deuteronomy 3, where it's talking about what God's going to do for you and how he's going to destroy the enemy. I have it in green. And um, where, you know, this is a positive thing for us. It's green. It's, you know what I mean? It's it's like more more of a, of a, of a positive connotation for a Christian. And um, so it's all kind of color-coded, the text. But you can just print this right out. Now, granted, this is going to be rough on a printer because it's a lot of color. <laughs> but um, these are good verses to print out and have in your Bible. And it says, And he shall bring them down before thy face, so shall thou drive them out and destroy them quickly, as the Lord hath said unto thee. And again, Hebrews 13, 8, Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. So why has why Jesus changed any? Why is it any different right now? And this is why I talked about before where, you know, these things are starting to manifest in Syria and, you know, um, <clears throat> Afghanistan and other places around the world where there's a lot of chaos. And I'm going to be playing some audios today regarding that. I'm like, there needs to be Christians there going against these things because trying to fight them with conventional weaponry, they're finding is almost impossible. They, their technology they possess is far beyond anything we have on this earth. They're incredibly stealthy, incredibly deceptive. You don't know where they're going to manifest. You don't know where they're going to pop up. And the only way you're going to be able to fight these things with any kind of reasonable success is through the Lord Jesus Christ. That's it. And I'll talk more about that later. So then the next verse in Deuteronomy 9.4. Speak not thou in thine heart after the Lord thy God have cast them out from before thee, saying... For my righteousness the Lord hath brought me in to possess the land. But for the wickedness of these nations, the Lord doth drive them out before thee. Now, okay, what does that mean? It says, Speak not thou in thy heart after that the Lord thy God hath cast them out before thee, saying, For my righteousness the Lord hath brought me in to possess the land. In meaning, don't be full of pride if you go to engage these things. And, and let's say you get, a vic you get the victory. And they're driven out before you and you start thinking, well, I must be a pretty good Christian. <laughs> you know, kind of pull up your suspenders and puff out your chest a little bit and, you know, well, I must be a pretty bad dude. Look at the, looky here, you know. No, 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 no. You don't want to be doing that. <laughs> Why is God doing it? But for the wickedness of these nations, the Lord doth drive them out before thee. God's using in this case, Israel, as a tool of God's judgment to drive them out and to destroy them. But not because the, the Israel was so righteous and perfect. Because if that's the case, you're trying to steal God's glory anyway. And God says he'll share his glory with nobody. So we just got, you want to really go into this very, very humbly if you're, if you're called to this. Um, <clears throat> that's how I think. I mean, I think there's a lot of Bible for it. Then the next verse kind of reiterates it. Not for thy righteousness or for the uprightness of thine heart dost thou go in to possess the land, but for the wickedness of these nations, the Lord thy God doth drive them out from before thee, and that he may perform the word which the Lord swear unto thy fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's why. So he's warning people, don't get full of yourself in pride. And then here it goes on to say, Understand, therefore, that the Lord thy God giveth thee not this good land to possess it for thy righteousness, 
for thou art a stiff-necked people. I mean, they were stubborn. He was doing it despite them, you know. But what if you weren't stiff-necked? What if you really were humble before God? What if you really said, well, God, I just want to go in there. I want to engage these creatures, not because I want to be seen or heard or get glory, but for your glory, God, for the sake of the souls that will be saved if people see this that all men would see and fear and declare the work of God, that they would wisely consider his doing, and that the righteous would be glad in the Lord and trust in him, and all the upright in heart were glory, according to Psalm 64. What if you did it for that reason? Well, then I think you would come to God with a much better heart. Because these were stiff-necked people, and God was still doing it. Still going before and defeating their enemies. But they didn't have a, a good heart toward it at all, obviously. Just something to think about. Now, Switching gears a little bit. Then we have Jack and the Beanstalk. Fee, fi, fo, fum. I smell the blood of an Englishman. Be he alive or be he dead, I'll grind his bones to make my bread. A lot of these fairy tales are based out of actual antiquity, factual things. Stories about the fairies and all the other stuff. I mean, Steve Quayle's got a whole book on it. Be he alive or be he dead? I'll grind his bones to make my... Isn't that kind of what the book of Enoch talks about? Where they consume men and... Oh, we're going to talk about that. And that they, they like to eat men. is like their primary um, food source and drink their blood. Yeah, we're going to talk about that. And it doesn't matter if the man is alive or dead. Now remember that as we go in because we're, we're just starting here today. I'm building up to a point here. I'm building up to where I'm going to actually show you this what this is happening modern day. Enoch chapter 7 and all the others together with them took unto themselves wives, meaning all the other fallen angels took unto, unto themselves wives. Hmm. Where does it also say that? It says that in uh, Genesis 6. It says they took them wives, the fallen angels, the sons of God, saw the daughters of men. They were fair, and they took them wives, all that they chose. Huh. It says it here in Enoch 7, too. They took unto them wives, and each chose for himself one, and they began to go in unto them and to defile themselves with them. And they taught them charms and enchantments. This is where witchcraft originally came in. When the fallen angels taught the women that they that they chose charms and enchantments and the cutting of roots and acquainting them with plants it also said they taught them the beautifying of the eyelids with antimony so this is where makeup comes in mm, sorry sorry about that but that's the origin of makeup according to what well enoch has no merit then it's a lie from the pit of hell that and that just proves it yeah because the makeup industry is so godly they the the like the stuff like a lot of the the brands they have like wicked and all these really jezebel and all these wonderful brands they've got oh absolutely it's puritanical what could i ever say what was i thinking sorry anyway sorry um i throw that one in and the cutting of roots and made them acquainted with plants and they became pregnant and they bear great giants who's and remember this is commentary i'm not saying this is you know, scripture, it's commentary. They bear them great giants whose height was 3,000 L's. Now, we don't know how high, how much an L is. Okay, I can't really figure that one out, but that's what it says. Who consumed all the acquisitions of men. 
Yeah, because those suckers, they're corn-fed. And they got a pretty big appetite, let me tell you. You know, they like their... Uh, they like their food, and primarily they wanted to eat a lot. And we're talking—they have double rows of teeth. When they found these things in, they, they still find these giants. And when they found them in the past, they always have typically double rows of teeth. Well, the better to chew you with, my dear, because you know you can you can process more food if you got two rows of teeth. And they bear bear them great giants. Um who consumed all the acquisitions of men and when the men could no longer sustain them the giants turned against them and devoured mankind so man tried to sustain these devils but again this is what always happens when you try to appease the devil it's never going to be enough they're eventually going to turn on you and eat you talk about biting the hand that fed you no pun intended and they began to sin against the birds and the beasts and the reptiles and the fish and to devour one another's flesh yeah, that's where we get all these weird mythical creatures like the Minotaur and the satyrs and the and the, all the... Well, yeah, because they're half, you know... Well, sometimes in some cases they're half Nephilim, half reptile bird, whatever. Maybe in some cases they're half fallen angel. Hard to say. They're still doing it to this day. And then the earth laid accusation against the lawless ones. Oh, no, I'm sorry, hold on, I, I forgot the last line. And they began to sin against the birds and the beasts and the reptiles and the fish and to devour one another's flesh and drink the blood. Remember, blood drinking is always prohibited in the Bible. Always. Don't eat the meat with the blood in it. And the Bible says that is a perpetual covenant. That's something that applies to us as well. It even says that in the New Testament. It says you're not supposed to eat the um, meat with the blood in it. Then the earth laid accusation against the lawless ones. The earth, in, in other words, lays an accusation. Well, where do we have another example of that? Well, when um, Abel's righteous blood cried out from the earth. That's the same type of thing. When innocent blood cries out from the earth, like we've got you know, over 100,000 abortions taking place every single day on planet earth, not just in America, on planet earth, statistically speaking, over 100,000 abortions every single day. So 100,000 sacrifices to Satan over every day, and that's just what we know of. I'm not talking about all the babies being aborted because women are on birth control or on the pill patch or the IUD. IUD is just nothing more than a, a birth, uh, uh, just an abortion factory. Yes, it can prevent implementation of the egg, but it's not the only way it works. The pill, the patch, the, that yes, it can prevent to a certain extent, but one of the ways they work is through abortifaction. It says it right on the things if, if you actually research those. I Just key in contraception in the um, keyword search box at contendingfortruth.com. I did a whole study on it. I'll give you all the facts with a PDF to, to prove it. So who knows how many abortions are actually really occurring on planet Earth every single day. We don't know what's going on in underground bases. We don't know what's going on elsewhere. Who knows? I don't know. And that's really got to be making God real mad. You know, he's only going to put up with that for so long before he lowers the boom. I mean, there's the, that's a biblical fact. Now, note the Alfa Romeo automobile symbol below. Unbelievably, this is for the Alfa Romeo car. 
unbelievably, we see a crowned serpent eating a human man on their their automobile logo. What has been added on the left side of the symbol is a white uh, is a red cross on on a white background of the Masonic Knights Templar cross. I mean, I'm looking at the symbol and I'm, I'm in disbelief. Uh, okay, so it's like you know, Taylor had never heard of Alfa, and I'm like, Taylor, come on. So I showed an Alfa Romeo car. Okay, it's a European automaker, been around for a long, long time. Um. We're talking decades and decades, Alfred Romeo. Literally, the original logo shows a, like a white guy out of, he, he's, his body, half of his body is in the serpent, the crown serpent, eating him. And, and, and his upper half of his body is outside of his mouth flailing as he's being eaten. That is their symbol. These are the people that essentially control the earth. These are the people in the Illuminati this is their bloodline. This is their religion. The Alfa Romeo badge is made in a round shape which encloses a heraldic red cross and a huge snake eating a man and the golden Alfa Romero letters which are located on the top of the circle. Well, really around the circle. Milano, oh, the word Milano writing is underneath nothing is known for sure about the fact why the founder chose such a shape and, and such a symbol for the company's logo oh i'm sure that you could find out i mean it's pretty obvious to me why they chose it yeah here's a picture i, I you, you got to see this thing it's in the pdf for this date now they've since toned the logo down just like they've done to the starbucks logo where it used to be a mermaid with her, with basically her bottom fins split and her and her legs pulled up around her ears like she's wanting to procreate. Yeah, that was the original logo for Starbucks. But that was way too risque. So then they they kind of like zoomed in more, and then they zoomed in one more time so that it just looks like the mermaid now. I've done just keen Starbucks. You should never, ever drink Starbucks coffee. Ever. It is wicked. You're bringing a curse on yourself when you give money to a company like that that gives money to Planned Parenthood and is literally so, I mean, pro-abortion and pro-evil. But there's a lot of companies I understand like that. I would never own an Alfa Romeo car. You got to see this symbol, guys, if you haven't. Just key in there it'll be on page probably about on page 10 of the pdf for this date you're not going to believe it now they've toned it down now it's more of like a instead of a, a guy like with hair and white skin and arms like is in the is in the one i'm showing you now it's more like more of a kind of a stick figure and it almost you could almost say well maybe that's just the the, the snake's tongue that's probably what they want you to think but it's not that at all that's how wicked and evil alfa romeo is it never ceases, and then it ends by this, because this is a kind of a, I, I was reading from a commentary that I had copied and pasted here that I added some information into, but it says, it never ceases to amaze me how disciples of Jesus, Christians, can believe in his supernatural birth, 
through a virgin and his supernatural resurrection from the dead and all the supernatural miracles that he performed during his life and all the supernatural occurrences in the Old Testament, including the magnificent parting of the Red Sea, such that the Israelites could escape the Egyptians. But when it comes to the subjects of giants, oh, oh no, that's impossible. You must be crazy. You're the devil. Be gone. <laughs> that's what he's saying Christians would say. So, yeah, I couldn't really, I couldn't really argue with them. Now I'm going to try to get these. I'm almost up in time on this one. I'm going to try to get through these um, verses here, considering the following statements by Jesus, Matthew 24:37. But as the days of Noah were, which means Noah, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days that were before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. And knew not until the flood came and took them all away, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. Then we go to Luke 17, 26, which is a little more of an expansion on it. And it says, 26 through 30, <coughs> excuse me, um, and as it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be in the days of the coming of the Son of, in the days of the Son of Man. They did eat, they drank, they married wives, they were given in marriage until the day Noe entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise also, as it was in the days of Lot, they did eat, they drank, they bought, they sold, they planted, they builded. But the same day that Lot went out of Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. Well, hold on, where did we just kind of read something very similar where they used the days of Noah and the days of lot oh that was second peter we was talking about the fallen angels and sodom and gomorrah yeah let's just read that again real quick well, hold on i'm sorry it was jude 6 as well so i'm just saying you compare scripture with scripture okay now i've never done this before in this in where i'm going with this i've never done this before and i'm not going to be totally dogmatic about this but it's something to think about Hmm. So where did we see that other parallel that we just read about comparing Noah's day and Sodom and Gomorrah? Well, Jude 6, and the angels, which kept not their first estate, but left their own habitation, he hath reserved in everlasting chains under darkness, under the judgment of the great day, even as Sodom and Gomorrah. Okay, so we're talking about fallen angels and Sodom and Gomorrah. Okay. Hmm. The days of Lot. Okay. And the cities about them in like manner, giving themselves over to fornication and going after strange flesh, are set forth as, as an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. Then we have 2 Peter 2, 4 through 6. For if God spared not the angels that sin, but cast them down into hell, and delivered them into chains of darkness, to be reserved unto judgment, and spared not the old world, but saved Noah, the eighth person, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood upon the world of the ungodly, and turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, into ashes, condemning them with an overthrow, making them an example unto them that, that after should live ungodly. Huh. Isn't that weird? We have kind of have that parallel between these verses and... Huh. I wonder... I wonder if there's a little more to this, these verses in Matthew and Luke then. Because, see, I've never got into that part. I've never got into the whole, well, hold on. People will say to me, but yeah, well, they were just eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage. That's all that was talking about. I wasn't talking about anything more than that in Noah's day. Oh, well, hold on. Whoa, whoa, whoa. What were they doing in Noah's day? Well, the only, the only real look we have at that is Genesis 6. 
And in Genesis 6, it's very, very clear fallen angels were procreating with women and that defiled the whole earth and created a race of giants. Now I'm going to let the author of this article speak. Objectively speaking, there's nothing wrong with eating or drinking or marrying or giving in marriage, is there? No. And that's the common argument you'll get about that. Meaning, using that as a proof text to say there's going to be giants in the earth. Because it was just, ah, they were, they were just referring to the people that were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage. Okay? What I think the Messiah was referring to here was the eating of living flesh and the drinking of living blood, of animals and of humans. And the marrying and giving in marriage of fallen angels to the daughters of men. The giant unholy offspring spawned by fornication of angelic spiritual bodies and the mortal human flesh and their subsequent atrocities, atrocious actions, is what is being condemned. Why? Because what is wrong with eating and drinking and giving in marriage? Inherently. But yet it's connected with judgment in these passages. So there had to be more, more to it. Well, it connects it with Noah's day. And then in Luke, it even goes beyond that and connects it with Sodom and Gomorrah, the days of Lot. And then we have the, the witnesses in Jude 6 and in 2 Peter that also connects the days of Lot and Sodom and Gomorrah with the fallen angels in Noah's day. Huh. You ever think about it that way? I'm going to read this last sentence again. The giant unholy offspring spawned by fornication of angelic spiritual bodies in mortal human flesh in their subsequent atro atrocious actions is what is being condemned. Not the simple and innocent acts of eating, drinking, and giving in marriage. See, now that makes sense to me. Well, that there's no way that's what it's talking about. Okay, well then what is it talking about? What is it? It, it just was just talking about eating and drinking and giving in marriage. And then Noah entered the ark. Why did Noah have to enter the ark? Well, this, to him and, you know, eight people in the ark and the animals to save humanity because the DNA had been so corrupted of humanity by the Nephilim and humanity, the thoughts of man's minds was only wicked continually. I don't know if there was any uncorrupted DNA on the planet at that point. I don't know. If there was, they were corrupted spiritually. God had to hit the reset button and start over. So let me ask you a question. When it says, for as the days that were before the flood, they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage. Where does it talk anywhere about in Noah's day where they were getting married and taking wives? Where's that even mentioned in the Bible? The only place I can identify where it's mentioned is Genesis 6. Where it said that the sons of God saw the daughters of men that they were fair and they took them wives all that they chose. And those wives produced giants. Could that be the marrying and giving in marriage? Well, is it about the righteous people of Noah's day that were marrying and giving in marriage? There really weren't any righteous people. And if there were, that wasn't mentioned there. And if there were, they probably died off before the flood. Or maybe were consumed by the Nephilim. I don't know. Well, what were, what were the giants doing, though? We know they were there. We know that the fallen angels were there. We know that the women had procreated with them. What were they doing? Well, they were eating and drinking. Well, they were drinking blood. It's very... They were consuming. They were eating humans. The Bible says they eateth up the inhabitants of the land. 
That's what giants do. The book of Enoch says that, but the Bible says it in many places as well. They were drinking their blood and they were marrying and giving in marriage. It was all an abomination. And then Luke goes so far as to say the same thing, but then it connects it to Lot, the days of Lot. They did eat, they drink. What, what was going on? They were going after strange flesh, which is the same exact connection that 2 Peter made in Jude 6, Jude verse 6 made. The exact same connection. I'm just saying it's something to think about. And it sure would line up with the Bible. I couldn't get this off my mind last night. I went to bed and this started coming in my mind. I'm like, oh Lord, this is blowing my mind. And then I looked in the Bible and I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. I got to look at this further. I got to look at, because you could say, there's no way you can say, there's no way I believe a Christian could say, well, there's the, you, what you say have no, how can you say that? The only glimpse of wives and marriage that the Bible gives us about Genesis 6 is fallen angels procreating with women and taking them wives. It's the only mention of it. So when Jesus says, but as the days of Noah were, so the, shall the coming of the Son of Man be, for in the days that were before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. Well, who was that primarily? It was probably primarily the giants who were procreating and, and their offspring was procreating and their offspring was procreating and the dna was all defiled and they were taking human women and probably there were you know when you procreate you know you have maybe a half nephilim breeding with a quarter cast nephilim breeding with, i mean you just had an absolute mess the dna of humanity had been defiled it's just something to think about and it can't and then genesis 6 1 um well again i've already read all this so um yeah i think i made my point there on this because i could i could read this other stuff but i've already read it so something to think about and we're just getting cranked up but i wanted to set the stage for the rest of the study with a lot of scripture because i didn't want to get into the the, the things that we're going to be covering in part two and I don't know if it's going to go into part three or not without laying a very, very, very good foundation, scripturally speaking. And I want to just de delve in, especially for the sake of maybe any new listeners. So anyway, God bless you and we will see you in part two. Oh, and uh, stay tuned for a short message if you'd like to help us out and keep us in the game. God bless you and see you in part two. Scott Johnson's 1,000 plus audio teachings and PDF documents are available for free 24-7 on the internet at contendingfortruth.com. That's C-O-N-T-E-N-D-I-N-G-F-O-R-T-R-U-T-H.com. In addition, we also offer a free Christian current event and health email newsletter. You can sign up at contendingfortruth.com. These email newsletters typically only generate about three to six emails per month if you subscribe to both lists. Please prayerfully help us to continue this work. For mail correspondence or to support this ministry, our mailing address is Scott Johnson, 2359 Highway 70 Southeast, number 321.
Hickory NC 28602 or on the internet, a PayPal donation link can be found at contendingfortruth.com. Thank you and may the Lord Jesus Christ richly bless you.